Okay. Welcome, everybody. This is the uh, first session of four sessions uh, of the mini-series, which is the third mini-series in a row. The first one was called Best of Both Worlds. As far as I'm concerned, really, they're all, they're, they all can fit in that category, Best of Both Worlds. Uh, the second, so the first one was Best of Both Worlds, uh, Heroes and Icons. The second one was uh, uh, Religion, Pop Culture. Uh, and the third one is uh, Midot and, uh, and Pop Culture. The, uh, most of what we do um, in, this, uh, in this class is that we have a source sheet, uh, supplementary reading, and then depending, and, and I usually start with showing pictures of something, stuff relating to what we're going to be, uh, to be talking about. This particular session, uh, namely uh, Instant Gratification and Impatience, uh, this is a little bit different from what we uh, do in this, uh, in this overall, in these uh, sessions, in that even though we will be talking a little about pop culture, we'll also be talking about culture in general, as in Western culture, uh, the big picture, uh, which it, and possibly, possibly even like a little bit too ambitious, but, but uh, it's, a, it's a good topic, and it's one that I've started, uh, I started researching way back um, uh, way back when I was in my uh, a, a year or two of, in uh, yeshiva uh, in uh, in Israel, um, I want to uh, recommend the article that I uploaded to uh, to the website. Uh, Anything important can be said in ten minutes by Rabbi Gidon Rothstein. Um, some of you may uh, may be familiar with him. He teaches Daf Yomi right here at at, at Web Yeshiva. Uh, this article appeared in Torah Current which was a website that had some good articles from 2005 to 2006, and then it went bust. Uh, fortunately, I, I, kept this, uh, I kept some of the, uh, of the articles. Uh, so before we, uh, uh, well, I guess, b before we start going through the, uh, the source sheet, I'd like to, uh, to share some uh, pictures uh, relating to what we're going to be uh, uh, talking about, and that is... Uh, over here, more or less in order uh, on the source sheet. A little bit different from what we sometimes do. These are there's actually more pictures than usual here because uh, so many of the um, quotes we're going to be looking at are not from individual books, uh, but like articles. So I thought I would show pictures of the the people who are uh, mostly the people who will be uh, whose whose ideas we'll be uh, looking at. So uh, we're going to only very briefly uh, talk of uh, given a couple of examples from uh, from Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, the this is a picture. This is not from my own material. I found this on the internet. This is a uh, complete set uh, uh, all of the Calvin and Hobbes books. And in fact, there's a lot of overlap here. It's a legendary cartoon that only ran for ten years, uh, eighty-five to ninety-five. But in the twenty-five years since, it has proved to be a timeless. Uh, and I have three. The first page of uh, of the, this, uh, this uh, my source sheet uh, has three examples from uh, from Calvin Hobbes. We'll hopefully we'll get to at least uh, a couple of them. Uh, we'll be uh, briefly discussing uh, a scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, uh, perhaps you heard of it. It's from the creators of Jaws and Star Wars uh, movie in, uh, in 1981. Oh, and that was Harrison Ford. Uh, you probably noticed that. Uh, 1984 uh, was a movie uh, starring a young Tom Hanks and uh, Daryl Hannah, uh, Splash, um, 
about a mermaid, uh, not exactly the Little Mermaid, uh, but we'll, you'll see how that's going to tie into uh, uh, a fantasy of uh, instant uh, gratification. Uh, we'll look briefly we'll, uh, at uh, an example or two from High School Musical and High School Musical 2, uh, Disney, uh, Disney Channel uh, movies. Uh, and I'm not going to spend any time at all talking about Twilight. Let's just move on. I'm not interested in vampires. That's my personal uh, bias. Uh, when we talk about, we'll go through some Torah sources, uh, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. I'm just going to mention the names now, and then we'll, I'll say something about each one as we, as we go through them. This is Rabbi Yitzchak Shuren, a uh, famous book about uh, Rabbi Ari Levine. The book is called Tzadik in Our Time. This is just a passing reference. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo Aviner, W.H. Auden, the, uh, the poet, uh, not Jewish as far as I know. Uh, Rabbi Mark Smilowitz, classmate of mine. Uh, Rabbinit Rivka Shimon. Uh, a contemporary uh, Israeli uh, teacher, uh, Rabbi Yossi Levine, uh, Rabbi Avi Weiss, James Gleick, the uh, writer uh, of, uh, uh, po of popular science books, uh, and we'll do a quote from his book, Faster, The Acceleration of Just About Everything. And there's a, uh, he's going to quote Professor Stephen Kern. I figure might as well get everybody's picture in here. Uh, we're most of the way done. Walter Benjamin. Uh, major, uh, in retrospect, major Jewish philosopher from the early 1900s, and this will see a quote from his book, Illuminations. Uh, Paul Valery, uh, not Jewish, but a uh, uh, philosopher uh, quoted by uh, Walter Benjamin, we'll see a quote of, of his. Bill Bryson, contemporary author, has written lots of uh, books, and we got a great quote from, uh, from him uh, that appears in this book of his, I'm a Stranger Here Myself. Notes on returning to America after 20 years away. Uh, Daniel Bell, we'll, we'll see a quote from, uh, um, from his book, very important uh, sociologist from the, uh, the early, uh, from the mid 20th century. And we'll see a quote from his book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. Uh, and we'll briefly talk about uh, the rise of credit cards. Um, we'll see a bunch of things from an article by this guy, um, uh, Christopher Muther, uh, writes for the Boston Globe. Uh, we'll talk briefly about uh, two-day shipping from uh, Walmart uh, and uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, and if we have time, I want to talk briefly about the phenomenon of uh, skipping lines, paying more to skip lines at uh, Disney World. I guess it's kind of ambitious, but um, there's also Netflix, the contrast between their original um, uh, service in which they – they send you a DVD in the mail, and you watch it, and you send it back. Believe it or not, that's the way that Netflix became big before the current uh, version, which is all uh, online, uh, uh, on-demand streaming. Uh, Lee Siegel is a journalist. Uh, he has an article on the, on the last page. Last page or two, Tommy Tomlinson, a journalist uh, who wrote this book, a poignant memoir. Uh, I see Perry's holding up a Netflix envelope. Uh, there you go. There are still people out there who have the DVD service. Thank you, Barry. Uh, so Tommy Tomlinson wrote this book, The Elephant in the Room, One, Man, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. I want to see a quote from, from him. Um, by the way, we're still going to try to wrap this all up in an hour. I'm not sure how. I guess we'll skip. Uh, Stephen Covey, uh, famous uh, self-improvement author. Uh, and we'll see a quote, not from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but from one of his other books, First Things First. His uh, journalist, Winton Weeks, uh, Mike Goodman, 
very important contemporary uh, Israeli uh, religious uh, author. And finally, Rabbi uh, Dal Marmer, uh, rabbi in uh, retired rabbi in uh, from Toronto. Um, that's um, uh, that's that's our our plan for uh, uh, for this uh, session. And uh, just to uh, get it out of the way, uh, let's start with um, one second. Well, I only have one one brief video clip. It's a really famous one, but it'll get us. Uh, into the topic of uh, a fictional fantasies, namely the fantasy of wouldn't it be great if you could do everything instantly? So I'm sure everybody's already seen this, um, but uh, it's really just less than a minute. Famous, famous scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's it. That's the whole scene. Um, one second. Just close that. Okay. That's the whole thing. Uh, it is a famous, famous scene. So why why do we just look at that at that scene? Because uh, a website that we've seen before uh, in this uh, in these series, and I, I highly recommend. Uh, TV Tropes, they have a website, they have a, a page called Cutting the Knot. What's the theme of Cutting the Knot? Based on the uh, the legend of Alexander the Great, um, uh, that within his, uh, his legend, there was a previous legend that whoever can untie this knot will be the king of Asia. So according to the standard version, there's multiple versions, Alexander the Great decided he wanted to conquer Asia and he couldn't untie the knot, so he just cut it. Wow, that's such a great solution. Wouldn't it be, it be great? There you go. I'm the, I'm the, uh, and then he went on to, uh, to conquer Asia, which just goes to show don't, don't be so sure what, uh, what oracles say. But that's, that's a great, what I, I'd like to call a, a fictional fantasy. That phenomenon of we solve the problem by totally avoiding all the complexity. Wouldn't it be great? This is a fantasy. Wouldn't it be great if we could, if we can, uh, reduce all, if we could solve all problems in the simplest possible way. So one of the examples that they give in this uh, trope of this trope is of cutting the knot is this scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So um, it's, they call him, it's practically his quote, Indiana Jones' hat, quote unquote hat slang, meaning that's his signature move. Um, wow, wouldn't it be great? You know, somebody has practiced his whole life uh, for... Uh, uh, to, uh, to be able to kill someone in a complicated way with uh, uh, with a sword, but if you have a gun, you could solve that problem. And this became a whole uh, theme. Uh, ironically, it turns out that uh, that was not in the original script of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Indiana Jones was supposed to duel this guy with his whip and show how the whip can match the sword, but... Um, uh, as it turned out, uh, Harrison. Do it. <laughs> yeah, um, you still need. It's still kind of a fantasy, but uh, uh, Harrison Ford made the mistake of eating some local food uh, in uh, when he was they were shooting on scene in uh, in in Egypt, and uh, he came down with dysentery. So uh, 
he couldn't uh, film for more than a few minutes at a time, so he proposed to uh, Steven Spielberg, how about if I just shoot him? And, and the rest is history. Meaning, I understand why they did it that way, but the fact that this is like the most memorable part of the, uh, of the movie, or maybe of action movies, uh, it's up there, action movies in general, it's like, that's an amazing fantasy. All you need is a gun, and Indiana Jones doesn't even stop to look if he shot him, cur- if he shot him accurately. He doesn't even stop to see if the guy's still alive. No, he's already turning away. La, la, la. I've, I've got better things to do. He's not nonchalant. Wow, that's, a, that, that's an impressive uh, fantasy. Um, and this is not exactly in the same category, but since we're talking about different aspects of culture, some people still have these Rubik's Cubes. In fact, you could still buy a new Rubik's Cube. On, well, this one is slightly, slightly used, but as they point out here on the TV Tropes web, uh, web, website, whoever was the first player of Rubik's Cube who figured out how to pull it apart physically and rearrange the colors so it's solved, quote-unquote, that that's proverbially, that's the equivalent of cutting the, the, uh, the Gordian knot of the Rubik's Cube. Or theoretically, you could peel off all the stickers and put them all back, and then you put them all back so that they are properly uh, rearranged. Um, so, but that's not the way you're supposed to do the puzzle. It's not challenging that way, but that's a, well, I can't solve the problem, therefore I will bypass it, wouldn't it be great if I could solve all my problems this way? So that's just one example of a page of TV tropes. Uh, most of their examples of the instant stuff, instant gratification, uh, on the, are on their page, the source number two, instant expert. I mentioned just a few examples. They have many, many examples. The Matrix, oh yeah, we had a whole, whole class about that. One of the aspects that we skipped uh, when we discussed the Matrix was that uh, because you're living in a virtual reality, so you can have get a full training regimen for anything from martial arts to piloting written directly into your brain in a matter of seconds. Famous, very brief scene uh, where uh, uh, Neo is played by uh, Keanu Reeves. He like, jerks his head and says, I know Kung Fu. Wow, wouldn't that be great? That's an amazing, that's an amazing fantasy. Apparently, uh, in the Star Wars uh, universe, there's a bunch of people who can do things like that, uh, who can instantly master stuff. Um, the Madison, the mermaid in the, in the movie Splash, she comes to uh, the city of people and she can learn English in a, in a single afternoon simply by watching television. Granted, she is a mermaid with magical powers, but this does seem a bit of a hand wave. That's TV trope slang of like the, uh, oh, we'll just explain it with some sort of magical thing. Yeah, you know, like, like waving your hand, like, like don't look behind the curtain. Like that's, don't pay any attention to that. That's, that's the, basically the lazy way to, uh, uh, to, write, um, to write fiction. Like, yeah, 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 it's not important. Let's just move on. Uh, then there's Troy and Gabriella, uh, the two main uh, characters, main love interest in uh, the High School Musical series, despite neither one being a trained singer, they manage harmony and perfect pitch with the song playing on a karaoke machine. Oh, well, that's pretty impressive. That's in the first movie. And at near the end of High School Musical 2, Troy is told to learn a new song literally two minutes before going on. Uh, and then when he goes, he, can't, he says, I can't learn a new song, but somehow when he gets on stage two minutes later, he's not only learned a new song, but he has learned how to harmonize with his partner whom he has never sung with, that song with. Okay, that's, that's not, 
that's not doable in uh, in real life, but that's okay. This is not real life. This is one of the more obvious fantasy elements of um, of High School Musical. Uh, and then when you're dealing with uh, the fantasy genre, as in science fiction fantasy, which includes, um, as we've discussed, uh, a little uh, comic books. So in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, well, there's Iron Man. Aside from everything else, his superpower is pretty much being a genius at everything, also having a lot of money. But what they emphasize is that there's no problem in any field that he can't master in, uh, in short order. So one of the uh, scenes of dialogue from the Avengers, when did you become an expert in the thermonuclear astrophysics? And he answers, last night. And he's being serious. Like, that's, wow, that's, that, that's amazing. It turns out that before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there were other movies that did that. Uh, it seems that, uh, I don't remember this, I haven't watched the James Bond movies in a long time, but apparently during the Roger Moore era, they, were, they had that sort of thing where, where James Bond can, can just pick up uh, anything. And I'm going to skip the example from Twilight, where, uh, where Bella becomes the, uh, the best vampire ever, much better than the pe- people have been vampires for, for centuries. But that's okay, because she's the main character, so, uh, so she can do that. These are what I like to call these fictional fantasies. It turns out that in the Jewish world, more specifically the Orthodox world, there are parallel fantasies. Let's call them from fantasies. We'll just look at a couple examples of these described in uh, different texts. The examples we're going to talk about are in, the, in Learning Torah, um, in, uh, in doing Tshuva, and in doing Kiruv. So, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman uh, Rabbi Feldman was, uh, he's retired now, but he used to be the editor of, uh, of Tradition. Uh, he was the, uh, the rabbi of uh, Congregation Beth Jacob of Atlanta for, for almost, almost 40 years. And he wrote in one of his pieces in Tradition that it's not the barriers to knowing the Talmud, or it's not just technical ones of, you know, how long does it take to learn the language and the, the styles and the formulas. He says, no, no, no. Uh, the concepts behind the Gemara of discipline, concentration, sacrifice, and toil, these are untranslatable in a society which demands that the most complex matters be mastered in six easy lessons and that the profoundest ideas be reduced to the 10-second soundbite. And then he quotes this old uh, uh, story from the great rabbi complained, every Jew would like to become a Talmud scholar, a Talmud chacham overnight, but during that night he would also like to get a good night's sleep, which is... Uh, uh, it's a good line. I don't know if any rabbi ever said that, but it's, uh, it brings out the point. Okay, you can't become a Talmud Chacham uh, overnight. It's not going to take uh, a night or even uh, a year. And sometimes people who come to yeshiva to learn how to learn Gemara end up being very disappointed because, like, I've been here for a whole year. Okay, eight months. You know, and I still can't make a laning. I still can't open up any Gemara right, but who said that it's the kind of skill that you can just master, you know, yeah, it's great if you learn Torah for several hours a day, but you know what? Most, certainly, certainly most people who come to the one-year programs in Israel uh, after high school, and even the ones who come to the places where you can learn Gemara all day, most people in those programs still cannot get to that level in, uh, in one year. Uh, just, just speaking personally, I would say it probably took me about, about five years um, uh, of learning Gemara most of the day to be able to get to, get to that point. Uh, maybe someone who's really good can do it uh, in less. I was never especially good at Gemara, but the point is that like, it doesn't, it's not the sort of thing that you can uh, 
Uh, it's not like with the video game. Okay, now you get to the next level, and now it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Anyway, that's that's one example of the a from fantasy of instant gratification. Wouldn't that be great if you could just say, "Ooh, now I know Gemara." Uh, source number number four. Rav Yitzchak Shurin uh, is the Rosh Midrashah of uh, Midrashat uh, Rachel Valea. Uh, that's the women's division of Chappelle's. Uh, they are a, uh, a learning institution that caters to Balo Tshuva. And he wrote an article back in 1994. I'm glad I saved it at the time because it's not on the internet. Um, called A Healthy Approach to Tshuva. Tshuva at one time was understood to be a lengthy process which followed a number of concrete and specific steps. And that, you know, Rabino Yona, the Rambam, here are the steps to Tshuva. In today's modern world, we expect instant gratification. Just as information and fast foods are ready at to the touch of our fingers, we expect instant Tshuva, microwave Judaism. Like, put in the microwave, okay, that's it, now you're done. But, he says, in co- Really, slow growth applies to any change a person wants to, to make. If you read a tzaddik in our time, no matter how inspired you may be, you can't become a tzaddik in no time. I thought that that was a good line. And even though I didn't put on the uh, uh, on the source sheet, there was a booklet that was circulating around Yerushalayim in the uh, in the early 90s um, called How to Get Deeper into Torah Without Going Off the Deep End. A tutor's suggestions for maintaining your sanity while studying in a Balchuva yeshiva. Uh, you can find this uh, online. Uh, I just wanted to mention a, just two lines from it. It's, it's very good advice for people who, you know, I'm going to be a Balchuva. I'm going to go to a Balchuva yeshiva and I'm going to turn my life around. Just two lines. Forget about being a Rav or spiritual advisor for at least five years. Forget about becoming a saint, a tzaddik, or an angel for at least 10 years. And, uh, and then it goes on to say, don't expect from people to be angels either. Uh, it's uh, a, lot, a lot of wisdom in this, uh, in this booklet. Uh, we just mentioned uh, learning Torah. We mentioned Tshuva. And now there's Kiruv. Okay? So Rav Shlomo Aviner, um, who is one of the more... Uh, prolific rabbis uh, here in Israel, the Chardal, Haredi Lumi community, um, the rabbi Beit El, etc., etc. He wrote a series of articles um, a number of years ago about how to, how to do Kiruv. Just one paragraph, which he says, I'm going to uh, translate freely. He says, the first uh, fundamental of doing Kiruv is Savlanut, is patience. Great, great Hebrew here. Ein patentium, ein trickium. Okay, there's no, there's no clever, there's no, there's no like clever trick, uh, trickium, that's modern Hebrew. Eintach Bulot, there's no, uh, uh, they translate that as strategy, but there's no, uh, there's nothing clever you could do um, to make people do tshuva. It doesn't work that way. There's no specific thing, there's no amazing sentence that you could do. If you just say that, that will get people to do tshuva. And he says, you know what? Our prophets, the Nevi'im in Tanakh, they didn't know any wonderful and any uh, amazing sentence either. After all, how could it be that 852 years went by of failure after failure of the Nevi'im to get people to listen to them until eventually there was the Korban? So clearly there isn't a great formula that if you just find it, yeah, yeah, you know what? People are much greater than we are, did not have such a formula either. And he says, P.S., Great rabbis through the years didn't have such a formula either. We, we don't find any time in Jewish history that, well, Rabbi so-and-so was able to uh, bring the masses back to, uh, to God. 
yeah, there, there are successes. There are people who become Bali Tshuva. And along the same lines, there are people who move away from observance, what they call in Israel, Choser uh, B'She'ela. Um, which there's a lot to say about that, but Ravinar is like, there isn't something out there that if you could just do this, that will magically, right, that's the point. It, that'll be magic. Okay, it's a from fantasy. It doesn't work that way. Rabbi Feldman, same one we quoted before, said this about himself uh, when he was getting started. One of my chaver and one of my friends from Yeshiva days said to me as I was leaving for Atlanta, turn that town upside down in six months. I want you to change their lives. I felt in my heart of hearts that six months was more than sufficient time to revolutionize things. Because he was going to a community that was nominally orthodox, but they were not so observant. In six weeks, I realized it would take more than six months. In six months, I realized there would be no revolutions at all. It took over 10 years, he says, before tentative blossoms began to emerge, and decades more before anyone tasted real fruit. Rabbi Feldman's son, uh, Rabbi Ilan Feldman, is the current rabbi of the same shul, and I assume he has all the problems that every synagogue rabbi has, but it's a lot easier for him after 40 years of his father preparing the ground uh, for him. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting um, interesting example of uh, one more like from fantasy, if you want to call it that. Um, let's uh, briefly go back to the first page and look at uh, the second uh, Calvin and Hobbes here. Uh, as another fantasy. Calvin says, everything is so darn hard. I wish I could just take a pill to be perfect. And I wish I could just push a button to have anything I want. Hobbes says, the American dream lives on. Calvin says, why should I have to work for everything? It's like saying I don't deserve it. So this is, you know, one of many examples of a very pithy, very brief, getting to the point of, uh, of the problem. Um, Let's talk briefly about examples in Jewish history about how people failed because they were impatient. W.H. Auden was not Jewish, but he came up with an idea that it turns out is in Chazal. He says, source number seven, perhaps there's only one cardinal sin, impatience. Because of impatience, we were driven out of paradise. And because of impatience, we cannot return. If you've heard this idea before, it's because it's in Breshit Rabbah. Because I'll say this in opinion source, source number eight, that Adam Harishon, uh, the original Adam, you know what? You couldn't even stand up. You couldn't even follow a command. You only had one command. And you couldn't even follow it for one hour. And yet your children, the descendants, your descendants, who some of them anyway, became the Jewish people. We wait three years between planting a tree and being able to eat it because of the laws of Orla. Basically saying, like, the significance of following the law of Orwa is it teaches us patience. But I thought, just thought it was interesting, because the emphasis of this medrash is presumably about Orwa, but it also agrees with, with, uh, with the poet Auden, which is maybe the real problem with Adam was not so, with Adam and Chava was not so much the specifics with the tree and the knowledge, but that they just couldn't wait. And they're, other Torah sources that, that elaborate on this idea, if only they waited a little bit longer, then uh, they would have been allowed to eat the, the tree of, uh, of knowledge of good and evil. Anyway, just want to uh, mention briefly, that's one example, Adam Harishon, a uh, classmate of mine at, at Yeshiva University who now lives in, uh, in Beit Shemesh, 
and uh, teaches at YTA, Rabbi Mark Smilowitz. He wrote uh, an article years ago when he was teaching at, at TABC in, uh, in Bergen County, an article called The Trouble with Aesop, uh, in which uh, he suggests that, and he's not the only one to say this, but he pulls together a few things, that part of Aesop's problem was that he couldn't wait. You know, give me the red stuff and give it to me now. Oh, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, you know, oh, you want my birthright? I'm not getting my birthright for years and years from now, but I'm hungry now. So um, many people ask, Rabbi Smilowitz says, why did God have to choose one son over the other? Couldn't both Esau and Yaakov be counted together as the inheritors of the, of the divine covenant? After all, Yaakov's 12 sons all got the covenant together. It seems that by his own choice of lifestyle, Esau excluded himself from, from the covenant. Um, that uh, the Torah requires mastery if it's to be handed down intact from generation to generation. Yaakov is accustomed to delayed gratification, to even on, just on the simple pshat level, because he waited either, you say, that he, on the midrashic level, he studied, he was in the tent, he was uh, learning Torah, or on the pshat level, he was a shepherd. He tended to his flocks, performing chores now for benefits later. That was the, the midah, the character trait of, of Yaakov, which made him, at least according to uh, Rabbi Smaw, it's trying to connect the dots together, worthy of, uh, of being able to, uh, to get the, uh, the covenant. Uh, he used the word nowism, which appears in the last source on the, uh, on the source sheet. I'm not sure we'll, we'll get to it. Um, moving a little bit later in, uh, in Jewish history, according to source number 10, the Midrash and Shemot Rabbah, part of the sin of the golden calf, which we're going to read uh, not that long from now, um, right, a couple of weeks from now, um, that uh, because they couldn't wait for Moshe Rabbeinu to come down from the mountain, if only they had waited a little bit more, then they wouldn't have sinned with the ego. It wasn't just that, oh, they sinned. It was a terrible thing. Right. But there are lasting consequences, according to two opinions in this Midrash, as a result of the sin of the golden calf, the Malchamavet, the angel of death, was, was given power over them, meaning, theoretically, they were supposed to get the Torah and become immortal. We'll talk about immortality uh, three weeks from now. Or alternatively, if only they had waited and, and received the Torah, they were, there would never have been galut. There would never have been exile at all. Wow, that's, that's really heavy. And the Josh concludes that it was as if Hashem said, you guys, you're following Adam HaRishon. Adam HaRishon couldn't wait. Couldn't wait until a few hours to be able... This is one of the sources that says if only Adam had waited, he would have been allowed to eat from, uh, from the tree. So the sin of the golden calf was not only idolatry, which it was, but it was also going back to the original sin from uh, the Garden of Eden. And the one who elaborates on this is uh, Rabbanit uh, Rivka Shimon, um, who is... Um, uh, she gives marriage seminars. She's involved in women's groups going on Har Habayit. And she used to have a column in the Parsha sheet, uh, Shabbat Shabbatot. And uh, she once wrote about this topic. And she says, part of maturity, part of adulting, becoming an adult, acting like an adult, what does it mean to be mature? That you can push off gratification. In contrast, the Jews in the desert, they were like a little baby. They were like a little kid where... The kid can't wait for anything. So, so oh, they can't. They don't have water. Wow, wow, wow. We don't. We have no water. We're gonna die. Oh, there's no. Uh, this is like a summary of basically 
Shmote through Bamidbar. Oh, there's no meat? Oh, terrible! Worst thing ever! Um, let's go back to Egypt. She says, it's like, it's like saying, let's go back to the womb. Okay? Like, I don't want this, this, I don't want this hardship here. She says, worshipping the golden calf, it was worshipping childishness. Worshipping the lack of responsibility. And that was the, the, so she says basically the pro, what led to the golden calf, golden calf was idolatry, but what led to it was this being impatient. But what leads to impatience? Being a baby. Not, not being able to, uh, to, uh, to t- have any, uh, any responsibility. A couple more examples before we uh, move away from the Chumash. Each of these, by the way, you can have a whole shear on, and I've heard or read entire shearim on each of these. Um, not the Venavihu, you know, they get zapped. Uh, they did something wrong. Uh, what exactly did they do wrong? There are at least a dozen opinions just in the Midrashim. One of the opinions is that they were walking af- behind Moshe and Aaron and, and saying, when are these two old guys going to die so we can take over? In other words, according to this opinion, what, what was the real problem? Because they were disrespectful? No, the real problem was, as a result of this, they then jumped ahead and brought fire that they weren't commanded because they decided they're taking over. They couldn't wait. Aha. So according to this opinion as well, what led, be, what led to the sin of Nadav and Avihu was impatient. Uh, rabbi Yossi Levine, the rabbi of the, uh, the Jewish Center in Manhattan, um, he gave a, a sermon about this a couple of years ago on Parshat Shuach, and he talked about the Ma'apilim. After God says, uh, to it, to Moshe. All right, that's it. The Meraglim, the Jews, they failed. You're not going in. You're going to wander in the, uh, here in the Midbar for 40 years. So the Mapilmar, the Jews are saying, no, we're going in. We're going to, we're going to go right now. We're going to solve that problem. We're going to correct our mistake. Okay? So, and then they get killed because Hashem is not with them. But like, what led them to do that? So Rabbi Levine suggests, you know, they, if they would, would be willing to wait for 40 years, they, they would have gone into the land. But they just couldn't bear the thought of having to wait so long. And he says, we've seen this play before, as they say in, uh, in Israel. Hayinu um, Bel Toseret, you know, we, we were in that movie already. It's Chava, Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. It's Esav returning from the field. And it's the story of the Mapiwim. So he, he connects the, uh, the dots here. Jumping ahead in Jewish history, uh, one of the most famous stories in the Gemara, source number 14, where a non-Jew comes to Shammai and says, convert me to Judaism on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. So Shammai kicks him out, and Shammai is right. And Hillel then says, oh, okay, well, you know, don't do to other people what you, what you don't want done to them. That's the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Now, now go and learn it. Meaning, Hillel tricked the guy into converting to Judaism. And now that he's Jewish, now you can't get away with just learning Torah while standing on one foot. Now that, that's all on condition that you now learn the rest of the Torah. There is no shortcut. This guy wanted a shortcut. And Shammai, following the letter of the law, is like, get out of here. Like, Hey, we don't want you if you if you uh, are now uh, if you can only, oh, are only willing to go w- with the shortcut. And Hillel's like, Hillel tricks him, goes along with it, pretends that there's a shortcut, and then says, "P.S. Not really. There isn't any uh, any shortcut." Um, I mean, Avi Weiss has uh, uh, who is uh, retired now, but uh, for many years uh, he was uh, the main rabbi of Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, also the founder of uh, Yeshivat Chovei Torah and Yeshivat Maharat. It's a fascinating article uh, in the forward 
uh, and it was reprinted in his book, Principles of Spiritual Activism, which he talked about false messiahs. And he suggested that, this was written in 2001, referring to what was then the right wing and left wing in Israeli politics, a lot of this has changed since then, he argued that both extremes were messianic in the sense that, like, well, well, messianic in the sense, lowercase m, not messianic like, oh, you know, Mashiach is here already, let's stop working, let's, let's, we don't have to follow any, any regular laws because Mashiach is here already, like, that, that's messianism in a very problematic way, uh, you know, false messiah, he says he's the messiah, Mashiach, so, you know, let's, um, um, every, everything is different now. He says they're, they're both messianic, both the right wing, like, you know, we're, we own, we Jews own the entire land of Israel, and there's, there's nothing to, uh, uh, to compromise about. There can never be anything to compromise about because this is, we're in messianic times. That's a literal messianic times. He says that's Gusha Munin, that was the Sedar movement. Um, and the opposite extreme was peace now, Shalom Achshav saying, well, you know, the, the main thing is just to give the Palestinians as much as possible, and then everything will be fine. We'll have the, uh, the new Middle East. And Rabbi Weiss says that both of these are, are false messiahs in the sense that they're both not actually living in the, in the real world. Uh, it's, it's a little controversial, but I just thought, that, you know, I thought it was interesting that Rabbi Weiss said, in contrast, one more example with, from a Jewish source, he says, the rabbis, in, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, liken, they compare the Messianic era to the rising of the sun. It happens gradually. Kima, Kima. There's a, 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 a book about religious Zionism by um, Rav Druckmann called Kima, Kima. Like, that's, that's our slogan, that the Geula, redemption, happens slowly. We don't have, there's no, don't give up on redemption just because uh, the state of Israel isn't a Torah state. Uh, already. Don't say, well, you know, Mashiach hasn't come yet, so he's never going to come. You know what? We're in the middle of a process, and you have to be patient. So I just thought that was interesting that Rabbi Weiss tied that in to um, that another, like, that part of the idea of Mashiach, that every day I wait, every day, and I don't give up hope, and eventually Mashiach will come, but in the meantime, I don't give up hope just because I lose patience. Anyway, moving on to... Um, uh, that's a very brief view of uh, uh, overview of impatience in, uh, in Jewish history. Um, impatience today, meaning today's world, today's society. How did we get here? Uh, fascinating line that quoted by James Gleick uh, in his book Faster, which I recommend. Faster, the acceleration of just about everything. Quote from this uh, professor, uh, Steve, Stephen Kern that the historical record shows that humans have never, ever opted for slower. In other words, the fact that people today want fast stuff, it's not that we're any worse than previous generations. We just have more ability to do stuff faster. So it's not like previous generations, oh, they would never have done the things that, that we do. But nevertheless, a bunch of things have changed. Just a couple of, uh, a couple of quotes. There's so much to, to, to say on this. Uh, uh, Paul... Um, uh, oh, one second. Just go back briefly to uh, 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 to Calvin and Hobbes. The the first Calvin here uh, from uh, from his father. It used to be that if a client wanted something done in a week, it was considered a rush job, and he'd be lucky to get it. And now with modems, faxes, and car phones. Yes, this was from 1995. Now everybody wants everything instantly. Improved technology just increases expectations. These machines don't make life easier. They make life more harassed.
And in the background, Calvin says, six minutes to microwave this. Who's got that kind of time? And Calvin's dad concludes, if we wanted more leisure, we would invent machines that do things less efficiently. And that, that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's one of the main points in, uh, in James, James Gleick's book. But fascinating line that I found in the middle of an essay by Walter Benjamin, uh, essay from 1936, but quoting Paul Valeria wrote this in 1927 in French. It's almost as if the decline of the idea of eternity coincided with the increasing aversion to sustain effort. In other words, as we've entered the modern world and secularism has taken over and people globally in so many countries have given up on God, religion, um, hope in eternal reward and punishment. It's like, wow, that's so interesting. That that goes together with the increasing aversion to sustained effort. Like, what's the point? I don't want to have to work hard now for something later. It's much easier to just believe, start believing that there isn't going to be anything later. And yes, once more, Calvin says this as well. This is our third and last Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Throwing these snowballs would give me immediate and certain pleasure. Refraining from throwing these snowballs in the hope of being rewarded at Christmas is delayed and uncertain pleasure. As usual, goodness hardly puts up a fight. In other words, your Yetzirah says, I want it now. It really, it's hard. It's hard to convince yourself that, but if I just wait long enough, then I'll get Olam Haba. Yeah, but how long is that from now? That's decades from now. Forget it. But I want this now. So it's literally your entire life from now. It's what? It's quite literally your entire life from now. Quite, literally, your entire life from now, right. So getting back to what, uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Yoni. The, uh, getting back to what we started to say before about the technology, Bill Bryson, in a book that I recommend, it's, uh, the American edition is uh, called I'm a Stranger Here Myself. The, uh, um, the British edition is, um, uh, is called Notes from a Big Country. It's, it's, it's great. He grew up in America, moved to England, moved, after living there for a while, moved back to America and started writing columns for a British newspaper about what life is like in, in this um, crazy America. It's, it's very insightful. Okay, also funny. One paragraph, source number 18. Americans, he's explaining this to Brit, Brits. Americans have always had a strange devotion to the idea of assisted ease. It's an interesting fact. Nearly all the everyday inventions that take the struggle out of life, escalators, automatic doors, elevators, refrigerators, washing machines, frozen food, fast food, microwaves, fax machines, PS, smartphones, well, they didn't exist in the 1990s, were invented here in America, or at least first widely embraced here. Americans grew so used to a steady stream of labor-saving advances, by the 1960s, they had come to expect machines to do pretty much everything for them. So it's not that Americans are so much worse than previous generations, that, that previous generations didn't have the ability to do stuff this fast, but once you have the ability to do stuff this fast, then why would you settle for anything slow? And then you start getting impatient when things are slower. Before we, we go to, uh, continue with contemporary culture, fascinating theory. I don't remember where I first saw this quoted, but uh, in the book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, where Daniel Bell speaks about there used to be, there used to be Puritan, in the Western world, Puritan restraint and the Protestant ethic. What was the Protestant ethic? The work ethic. You work really hard. 
You work because of an obligation to your calling or to fulfill the covenant of your community. The Protestant ethic was undermined not by modernism, like secularism, which is what you would have thought. Oh, people became less religious, so therefore they didn't think there was any point in working long term. He's not even talking about Olam, uh, olam Haba. He's talking about Olam Hazeh. What's the point in working? The Protestant ethic was undermined by capitalism itself. The invention of the installment plan or instant credit. We're talking about basically uh, starting at the very, very beginning in the 1940s and then taking off in the 1950s and 60s. It seems bizarre to those of us who were born after that, but you know what? It used to be that you couldn't just take a card out of your pocket and go like that and buy whatever you wanted. Even if you didn't have money in your bank account, you actually had to pay for it. And if you didn't have the money, you couldn't pay for it. This only got off the ground starting in the 1960s. So he, Dan, th this guy who is basically one of the experts in the history of capitalism says, previously, you had to save in order to buy. But with credit cards, you could indulge in instant gratification. When the Protestant ethic was sundered, was, was separated from bourgeois society, only the hedonism remained and the capitalist system lost its transcendental ethic. Meaning there is still capitalism, and there are still people who work hard, but the idea that there's like an ethic, there's something like um, transcendental, there's a value in, the, in working, at least in the Western world, Christian world, not anymore. And he says, it's not because of secularism, it's because of credit cards. I just thought that was an interesting uh, idea, even if he's uh, exaggerating still. It, it uh, brings out... Uh, it's something that's worth worth uh, thinking about. And then this essay, which we're not going to have time to go through, but uh, uh, worth going through a bunch of examples uh, uh, by Christopher Muther in source number 20. Um, Impatience may be most pronounced among the young, wired nearly from birth. Okay? As in, if there's an app for everything, if you, if you can hold everything on your phone, why would you want to do things the uh, the slow, painstaking way, and, and to some extent, that's a that's an excellent argument, depending on what you, what you're talking about. Okay, if you get used to same day delivery, which Walmart did not quite uh, get off the ground, you can get it two days. Uh, then, if you, if you if you could get something in two days, why would you want to wait for it to to take a week or two to to be shipped to you? And um, and we're not going to have time to to go through this, but uh, Amazon uh, has Amazon Prime has all sorts of uh, of val of um, actually maybe we will briefly. Um, Amazon Prime has all sorts of uh, things that you can, if you're willing to. Uh, one second, if you're willing to pay, you can get sometimes even free one day delivery, free same day delivery. Sometimes if you're ordering groceries through Amazon Prime, you could get, depending on where you live in America, free two-hour grocery delivery. Why would you want to order through some supermarket that makes you wait until tomorrow to get your groceries? Okay, you can add items through the week. Um, you can get Key by Amazon in which they will bring you stuff either to your home or leave it in your garage, okay, and you know what? You might have to pay for something like this. Well, you do have to pay for uh, for Amazon Prime. But once you get used to getting stuff two days later, well, then of course you're going to pay. Right now, it's thirteen dollars a month in America to get, to get Amazon Prime. Like, how could you not do that? 
And that brings us very briefly to Disney World. Um, so, yeah, um, there is – you can get – this. Is, Disneyland has a thing called Max Pass that costs you $20 per person per day on the top of the regular on top of the regular ticket price. They'll let you get into a bunch of uh of rides, skipping all the lines. But even that has restrictions. If you this is an article from their website Trip Savvy. How to skip all the lines at Disney World subtitle. It can be done, but it'll cost you. And the the short of it is you go for uh you pay for Disney World's VIP tour services. Which, as of this past year, that's three hundred forty-nine dollars per person for seven hours, not including the a hundred whatever dollars for the uh, for the theme park admission. But wow, wouldn't it be great to be able, especially if you're going uh, during uh, during prime time, um, during uh, tourist season? Wouldn't it be great to be able to skip all those lines? Well, it'll cost you. But if you have the money, why would you not? Why would you not want to spend that money on skipping the line and grinning gleefully at everybody as you walk past all the people who are who will have to wait online like everybody else? Um, we are running out of time, so I'm going to skip now to the section called "What's Wrong with Impatience Anyway." So one point, which is made by Tommy Tomlinson, I mentioned this before, it's uh, a moving memoir. Uh, the premise of this memoir is, as this journalist, he was about to turn 50, he re- reevaluated himself. He weighed 460 pounds, and it was, it, was, it was in some ways ruining his life. It was causing him major health problems. He decided he had to change his, his life, and he wrote about his year of doing uh, not just a diet, but trying to think about how he got to this terrible place in his life and how to get away from it. And it's it's a book with hope, but it's also um, very, uh, let's just say it doesn't give any magical solutions. So that's his, his book, The Elephant in the Room. And he has this line that he quotes from somebody who uh, worked with him on the Charlotte Observer. The surest sign of an adult is the ability to accept Delayed gratification, which is exactly what Rivka Shimon said a couple of pages ago about the ego. He said, to, to control my weight, um, to become the person I'm supposed to be, I have to shake the habits that have clung to me since I was a kid. I'm skipping a little bit. I don't want to put away the child inside me, but I can't let him run the house either. And that's what he's been doing my whole life. Um, and... And he says he and his wife have started using the word adulting, which is a contemporary word. I'm not sure if the dictionaries have it yet, but people use it in a serious way, like to meaning if you you don't want to act, you don't want to be responsible. Well, guess what? You're already an adult. You might as well adult things. You might as well uh, act like an adult. Even things like we wash the dishes right away instead of waiting. We file away papers instead of letting them pile up in a stack. We're adulting. And so, too, adulting is the only way I can beat my addiction to food. I thought it was interesting. That was the way that he he applies that insight into um, trying to solve his, uh, his weight problem. Obviously, we're going to skip the next source. I'll just very, very briefly uh, mention it. Stephen Covey in his book, First Things First, he has a chapter – uh, about the law of the farm. He contrasts 
cramming in school. Cramming in school is when you goof off and then you spend all night before the big test trying to cram the semester's worth into your head. Okay? Can you imagine cramming on a farm? Oh, yeah, I forgot to plant in the spring. I didn't buy, you know, flaking out all summer. And then in the fall, now I'm really going to get the harvest. Uh, no, actually, cramming does not work in a natural system like a farm. That's the fundamental difference between a social system and a natural system. And he goes on to say in the long run, the law of the farm, meaning you're not going to get a good harvest unless you put in a lot of work long term, in the long run, the law of the farm governs in all areas of life. Long run. And then he goes through a bunch of examples, character, physical health, marriage. Whoops, I meant to skip the next page. Marriage, relationships with your spouse, relationships with your children. In long, ter long term, the law of the farm governs in all areas of life. And then he applies it to health, which is what Tommy Tomlinson was, uh, was doing as well. Economic well-being, that's what we said with the credit cards. Yeah, you know, we can live with the rescue fantasy of winning the lottery, okay? And uh, somebody or something out there is going to magically solve all our problems and absolve us of the need to develop competence in financial affairs. Right. That's back in the category of the fantasy, meaning uh, – the fantasy of instant gratification, that is not going to work long-term in life. So you might as well accept it now, and that's more or less what he tries to argue. Social needs, mental needs, spiritual needs. He has a whole, whole chapter on this, uh, on, on this phenomenon, um, and he concludes, Stephen Covey concludes on, uh, on page 8, there is no way quality of life can grow out of illusion. The quick fixes, platitudes, and personality ethic techniques that violate basic principles will never bring quality of life uh, results. And um, a couple other sources about, uh, about health. Right. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so I want to conclude with two sources. Um, one is from... Uh, source number 25, Dr. Uh, Micah Goodman. He's the head of the pluralistic uh, Beit Midrash in Ain Prat. He has written several books, uh, written in Hebrew. Most of them are being translated into English, and they are important. Uh, one uh, is called Maimonides and the Book That Changed Judaism, Secrets of the Guide for the Perplexed. He has one called Catch 67, The Left, the Right, and the Legacy of the Six-Day War. His most recent book is called The Wandering Jew, with an O. The Wandering Jew, Israel on the Search for Jewish Identity. Anyway, he has a lot of insights. So he wrote Dvar Torah a number of years ago, in which he says the uh, primary characteristic of, uh, of Jewish history is hamtana, is waiting, internalizing the possibility according to which the, prophet, the promises that we have from Hashem and the Nevi'im, these ancient promises will be fulfilled only gradually. It's worth holding out. Don't go for, fill in the blank, the uh, uh, converting to Christianity or Islam or becoming secular and communist, whatever, whatever reason people have left traditional Judaism over the centuries. If we, to stay Jewish, to stay traditional is to say, I don't need everything to depend on Mashiach coming today. 
Mashiach will come eventually. Olam haba and reward and punishment after the, this, this life will come eventually. I don't need it right now. For the time being, I'm willing to stick it out. So Dr. Uh, Micah Goodman argues that that, that mida of patience lies behind the continued existence through Jewish history of, um, of, uh, of Judaism, Jews and Judaism. And I'll just conclude before I uh, wrap it up. Uh, Rabbi Dal Marmer, he is a uh, Rabbi Emeritus at the uh, Holy Blossom Temple of, uh, of Toronto, largest Reformed congregation in Canada. He was born in, in uh, see, uh, he was born quite a while ago. He was born in Poland, so I assume his name should be pronounced Dove. Uh, anyway, this article, which I was given in, uh, in Shalvim in 1989, uh, was the first item in my file on instant gratification. See, I've been collecting the material for 30 years. Um, and he, the article is called, I assume it was a sermon, called, called Nowism. The consumerist dogma, buy now and pay later, like we said with credit cards, is based on a philosophy of life that can be formulated as live now, pay later. And that's diametrically opposed to our religion. We say pay now, live later. Judaism is a system of delayed gratification. Um, and if life is too short to sort everything out, um, so we'll wait for the life of eternity that's promised beyond the grave when everything will be sorted out. The notion of a life after death is inherent in the system of delayed gratification, which is more or less what we quoted Paul Valerie as saying back in source number number 17. Nowists reject every notion of a beyond. It's all here and now anyway, so there can't be olam haba. But as Jews, however, and it's interesting, there's even a reform rabbi saying this, we can't make sense of life without such a notion. The things worth having are worth waiting for, even uh, even beyond death. Fascinating idea. Um, uh, that is, uh, our time is, uh, is up. Uh, thanks to everybody for, uh, for joining me. Um, and I will end the recording shortly and then I'll go through the comments and, uh, wait around if anybody wants to say anything. Uh, but I'll just invite everybody to, uh, join me next week, um, for the, for the topic of con confronting fear, the, uh, different approaches to, to dealing, uh, dealing with fear, horror, divergent, and defending your life. Um, so I'm going to uh, end the recording now, and uh, uh, and then we'll c we'll continue with the comments.